Well, good morning. It is good for us to be together. And it is a joy for us to be together. And as you look out over the audience, we're just delighted to have so many visiting with us, family and friends uh, who are here at this season of the year. And we're just glad that you're with us this morning to share in a worship of God. And so thank you for taking the time to come and encourage us and have fellowship with us in the worship of God and in edifying of one another. I want to personally say thank you to Brother David for his prayer today. And I'm sure I speak for all the families whose hearts are heavy. So thank you. And please continue to do so to pray for our children and to pray for the parents and the grandparents who are heavy laden in their hearts for the souls of their children. Majesty. For some weeks now, I have been touching on this subject of the majesty of God's kingdom. When you talk about majesty, it has to do with the grandness and the loftiness of sovereign power, of sovereign rule. And definitely God and his kingdom are both supremely majestic. The majesty of the divine domain, though, is dependent upon the fact that God the Father and God the Son and God, the Holy Spirit, are the one true sovereign. The one Godhead, the one sovereign that is real and true and exists in this universe. And the everlasting kingdom of our creator, the everlasting kingdom of our redeemer, is filled with the fullness of God's sovereignty because his fullness fills the kingdom. So this morning, it is my uh, attempt to try to talk a little bit about this and look at some of the scriptures that speak of the fullness of God in his kingdom. So what is this fullness? What is that fullness that the scriptures talks about? Or how is it manifested? Or maybe what is our part as Christians in partaking of God's fullness? Well, it begins with an understanding that the fullness of God is revealed, first of all, through God's Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, 8 through 10, it reads, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So, you're, so we're warned, watch out for all those other things in the world that can distract us and pull us away from Christ. Why? For, verse 9, for in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. While Jesus 
was on earth. Jesus of Nazareth, while he was on earth, Jesus was the complete fullness of deity. He was literally God with us. He was Emmanuel, God with us. God walked on earth when Jesus came. When the word incarnate took on flesh and dwelt among men, they were seeing a revelation of God the Father. He was and is. Because the fullness of deity dwells in him, he was and is omnipotent. He is omniscient. Divine fullness is also uh, expressing the idea of his supreme authority. All authority he possesses in heaven on earth. He has headship. So everyone who actually saw with their own eyes the begotten son witnessed a revelation of God the Father. If you recall, that's, ex- that's the point Jesus makes to Philip over in John 14. When Jesus is talking about his departure, preparing them for that, and, and Philip as will show us the Father. And, he, and Jesus comes back with this question. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Don't you get it, Philip? And he didn't. Just like we don't always get it. And he goes on to say that as Jesus speaking here to Philip, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The word that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus' words, Jesus' works, all of that together were from God. They were from his Father, but not just from it, but also it was of the Father as well. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, excuse me, uh, in verse 3, the Holy Spirit has this to say in the introduction of this great book when he says, of Christ, the one through whom God now speaks to us in these last days, the Son, he says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's fullness filled Jesus. In Jesus, you saw compassion. In Jesus, you saw righteousness. In Jesus, you saw holiness in its fullness on earth. That's why in Hebrews, it could say, the one who is the fullness of the majesty, what does he do? He upholds. That is, Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. It is Jesus who illuminated the fullness of divine grace and truth. There in in verse 14 in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he talks about the Word took on flesh and dwelt among men. They beheld the glory of the only begotten one, full of grace and truth. 
Not only did Jesus teach truth and teach grace, Jesus was truth. He is truth. He was grace, and he is grace. That is why he could boldly say over in verse 6 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, that's why he could say, I am this. I am the truth. Why could he say that? Because the fullness of God, the fullness of his Father was in him, even while on earth. No other being on earth or in the heavens is the total fullness of God like Jesus. There is no other like Jesus. He was the revelation of the fullness of God. And because he is and was the fullness of the Godhead on earth, Therefore, the fullness of Christ is to be seen now in the body and church of the Lord. John also says in the first chapter, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So in Ephesians chapter 1, you look there at the last two verses of this particular text. In verse 22 and 23, it's in the context of how God has given, God has granted all authority to his son above all kinds of powers and authorities, you name it. He is above it all. And in verse 22, he goes on to say, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. You see that? So here's Jesus, the fullness of his Father, who is empowered, you know, with all authority in heaven on earth. And all things are to be put under Jesus' feet. And he is the head over the church, which is his body. And he says, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The body of Christ, the body of Christ is not only governed by her head, Jesus. She is to be his fullness. That is, the church, the body of our Lord, is to be filled with Christ completely. The church and the kingdom, which are a description of the relationship of God's people with him, the kingdom, the church, she exists, she lives, and she labors for God's glory. We are to be laboring and existing for the Savior King's glory. And so if Christ is the fullness of God the Father, and if the church is the fullness of God the Son, then the body and kingdom of Christ is called to be likewise the fullness of the Father as well. That's why the, the majesty of the kingdom is the fact that the fullness of God dwells within her. God redeems citizens, that is Christians. Christians who are the God-redeemed citizens of Christ, we are to be an embodying of the fullness of the Godhead. As each 
member of the body, as each Christian abides and walks in God the Father, in God the Son, and in God the Holy Spirit, we are to be an embodiment of that. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3, we're told, where, do you, where are you going to find wisdom? Or may say, where are you going to find God's wisdom on earth? Well, verse 10 tells you. It tells you it is to be evident in the church. Speaking of how Paul has been called to preach the gospel to the Gentile world, make that mystery known to all in verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Where is God's wisdom to be evident and seen? In the church. Well, what, who is the church? God's children, God's people. It's not a building. It's a living thing made up of saved and redeemed souls. In chapter 3, again, you drop down in verse 19 in this prayer that Paul is offering for the saints. And one of the things he talks about, the idea of how he wants them to grow and be rooted and grounded in the Lord properly in verse 19, so that you may know, you have a knowledge of the love of Christ. And he says, that you may be filled. With what? That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Why is God's kingdom majestic? Why is the kingdom described as something that is filled with the majesty of God? Because it is to be filled with God. That's why. In chapter 4, verse 13, continuing to address the saints' need to be walking in the light, walking in Christ, and growing and working together to the glory of God. In verse 12, it talks about how, okay, God has ordained ministers to equip Christians so they can serve. In verse 13, it reads, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're to be growing and maturing and serving in such a way that the mature, as mature men and women, mature sons and daughters of God in Christ, the Lamb and Son of God, we are growing up unto the fullness of Christ. So the spiritual kingdom that is to be filled with God's fullness and is to be a reflection of the one who is the revelation of God's fullness is all about the heavenly sovereignty. It's all about the heavenly majesty. That is, it's about doing God's will it's about accomplishing God's purpose. It's about teaching God's word, and it's about proclaiming God's glory. So therefore, who is to be pleased in the church? It's not about us. 
Now, we compose the body of Christ. We make up the church as redeemed souls, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who are to be walking in that narrow way and abiding in the light. But it's not about us. It's about him. It's about the one who is truly the majesty above all things. Who is to be seen and exalted in the kingdom, in the body of Christ, is not us. We're not the ones who, in the sense, are to be seen and exalted. No, it's to be God. It's to be the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you think about that, what is to be your goal in letting your light shine? Go back to Matthew chapter 5, 16. You know, you all know it. It's that one verse that, you know, even when we can't quote, we can, we can paraphrase it pretty close. You know, we're to let light shine, that we, we're to be let our light shine. You know, but what, what is the goal of doing that? Is it so you get the glory and I get the glory, so we are seen and, oh, we're such good people, you know, and, and they start bragging about us? No, it's not about that at all, is it? It's all about making God visible through your life. That's what it's about. As the fullness of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit fill us, the kingdom, the church, the body of the Lamb of God, as that fills us and light illuminates because we're being filled with God, the God who is light. We're trying to make God more visible to the rest of the world through the things we do, whether big or small, it doesn't matter. Little or not is so God can be seen and they can see the majesty himself through us. Or why should we be diligently growing Go back here. Why should we be diligent uh, growing in Christian virtues? Over in 2 Peter, you know, many of you are very familiar with that particular passage as we're called to be diligently adding some stuff, some stuff to our faith. And we generally call those different attitudes, those characteristics, you know, Christian virtues. Virtues that are to be evident in our life and growing in our life as redeemed people. And so, in verse 4, it talks about how we have been granted promises, great and amazing promises, and we are now become partakers of the divine nature and having escaped the corruption that's in the world. Now, listen to what he says in verse 5. Now, for this reason, get the point? Now, for this reason, what reason? For the reason he just told you in verse 4. Because you have received great, magnificent promises. Because you are partaking of the very nature of God right now. And because you have escaped the world's corruption. For this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your more excellent knowledge, and the list goes on. Why should we be diligently Growing in these characteristics, these qualities, is because it originates with us. No, it's because that's the character of God. That's why. 
We are partakers of the divine nature. We are being filled with the fullness of God. We are citizens of a kingdom that is an expression itself of the majesty himself. Now, this kingdom, this anointed one's domain, though, is pressing upward to the culminating state, to the final fellowship where and when God is all in all. The one described in Ephesians 4, 6, the one God and Father of all, of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul shares some things about the future of the kingdom that has been established by Christ and is in existence right now, and we are part of this amazing spiritual kingdom, and he is our king. Well, what's going to happen to it? What's the future of the king? We talk about how it's permanent, it's everlasting. What else do we need to know about that? Well, over in chapter 15, beginning in verse 20, we're going to see that this kingdom is laboring, is marching upward and onward to be eternally one day in the visible presence of the majesty above himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after the, that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is, expect, he is accepted he, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. The kingdom exists for God's glory. And the kingdom is marching onward so that one day she may be literally in the presence of her God. Christ, we are told, described here as the first fruits. Christ, the first fruits, is reigning. And he is battling unto victory, and he will win the war. He overcame death, he will overcome whatever lies before him. He will never return again to Hades. He will never return again to that place of death called Hades or Sheol. No, he conquered that. And now he assures us, he assures all men, that there is a great resurrection coming, and there is a great day of reckoning, a great day of judgment coming, and we have a sure hope we have a confident expectation about that future. Both of those things are going to happen. Are you ready? Before the kingdom, though, can reach her glorious end, 
before we can have that final culminating fellowship with our Creator, our Father, and with our Creator, the Savior, and with our Creator, the Spirit, our Comforter, before we can have that final ultimate fellowship, Jesus must defeat and remove all powers, all principalities, all authorities that oppose God and oppose his kingdom. There's only one kingdom, right, David? There's only one kingdom that is unshakable. All others will come to an end, and they will be no more. But while Satan and death remain, the kingdom that is to be a reflection of the fullness of God, the kingdom has not reached her final and ultimate objective. Jesus is battling to put all his enemies under his feet. And death, we are told, will be the last enemy to be defeated. That's the last one. But kingdom subjects, Christ's subjects who are in the kingdom are being prepared. We're being prepared for heaven with God. The spiritual domain of redeemed souls, clean souls, Christians, is so that God may have sons, so that God can have a family in glory with him one day. Romans 8 talks about that idea of God has predestined that we would be conformed to the image of God and that Jesus would be the firstborn of sons of glory. We're being prepared for heaven. Or over in 1 Corinthians 15 again, where it talks about, you know, overcoming death and that sting will be no more. At that time, at the end, Jesus will give his redeemed citizens, his redeemed souls to his Father, and all who have proved steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, they will partake of that final, eternal victory. So, when the majesty of God's kingdom in Christ is fully attained, it is then that holy fellowship in its ultimate sense will be finally shared between God and his people. Right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. But one day, one day, we will be where God is. We will be in his dwelling place. We will walk in his sanctuary where there is no darkness, no uncleanness, and no abomination. And what a beautiful place that will be. And that's exactly how the New Testament closes out with this last vision, this last scene of what is coming one day for those who keep the faith, even to the point of dying for Christ. The victory that is assured to them In Revelation chapter 21, 
just reading those first few verses, John says, I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, coming down, out of heaven from God, made ready, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And he said to me, excuse me, and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamb nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. In the end, God with his kingdom will be glorious. It will be outstandingly beautiful. For the fullness of the majesty of himself will permeate absolutely everything and everyone. Are you in the kingdom? If not, if you're outside of Christ, this hope is not yours yet. The one who abides in the teaching of Christ, we are told, has both the Father and the Son. And that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. God wants you. God desires to be your father. He wants a father-child relationship with you. And God desires you to have fellowship with him, and he desires that you one day share in his fullness when time is no more. Don't you want that? Don't you want to know that you have a hope of everlasting life in Christ Jesus? Come out and be separate the Lord says, be separate from this dark world that allures and enslaves and entangles. Come out of that and walk in the light of Jesus Christ. 
there in Christ, you see God. And you begin to see his fullness by faith. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, and you believe that with all your heart, why not today? Confess that faith with your mouth unashamedly. Repent of your sins and come asking to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Immersed in baptism that you may be raised to walk in newness of life for God. Whatever your spiritual need may be, we invite you to encourage you. Please come now while we stand and sing the song. Let's be